here. It is Labor Day weekend, and I'm sure a lot of people are out on the lake. But I think that joining uh, in worship as a community of God is one way that God tells us this, this is how we rest from our labors, that we come together. It's part of our identity is that we gather and worship each and every week. And so thank you for choosing to be here, choosing to worship God with us this morning. So we're continuing our sermon series on things that we weren't, talk, we weren't told when we were going through Sunday school. Uh, we've talked about things like, you know, failure and depression and brokenness and what it means to be a martyr and to follow God even if things are difficult. And today we continue that with talking about suffering and oppression. I know it seems like I, I, we're talking about some really difficult subjects. We will get some lighter topics eventually, I promise. But, um, but these are important because these are things that a lot of people walk away from their faith because they deal with depression or brokenness or suffering in their life. And they say, where is God in the midst of my troubles? And so we're kind of answering some of those questions. And we're doing it with the story of an incredible, a couple of incredible women, women uh, these midwives, Shipra and Pua, we've talked about them before, who actually stand up to the most powerful person in all the world at that time, the Pharaoh, and say they will not do what he asked them to do. And it's incredible. This week I, I watched an interesting movie called Silence. It's by Martin Scorsese. I don't know if anybody's seen it, but it's really good and it's even an even better book. But in the, in the movie, these two Catholic priests hear about their mentor, who was a missionary to Japan in the 17th century and had given up his faith. He had walked away. He said he was no longer believed in Jesus. Uh, the word they use is apostatized. He had, he had repented and recanted of his faith. And so these two priests go to Japan to find him and see what's true and see what the situation is. And when they get there, they find out for Christians the situation is terrible. You see, the people in power in Japan have decided that Christianity is the problem. They start telling lies about Christians, and they first start killing Christians, right? But we know from our experience, what we've talked about, that when you kill Christians, it actually, for some reason, the church ends up growing, and it's even stronger than ever before. So they start torturing Christians, and they get them to recant and say they never believed in Jesus in the first place. And in fact, the, the main character in the story goes through this process himself and ends up recanting his belief in Jesus and living his life as a Buddhist in Japan. It's this kind of horrific, heart-rending story. But in the midst of it, the, the reason it's called silence is, is he's questioning, where is God in the midst of this suffering? Where is God in the midst of this torture and violence and these things happen to Christianity? And the place that he hears it is right before he gives up his faith, his, his faith at least publicly, and uh, Jesus gives him permission to stop being tortured and to step on this, this face of Jesus. So that question, that made me think about that question, where is God? Where is God when we're experiencing oppression? Where is God when we're experiencing suffering? Where is God when we are hurting? Is God silent? Or does God show up? In our story today, God definitely shows up. But as we talk about suffering and why suffering happens, there's a few different things I want to talk about just to sort of set the table. And the first thing I want to talk about is, again, it's very important for us to think about what not to do and what not to say. So there's a couple things that we often say when we have a, a friend going through a difficult time that we just jump to because it's easy to say. And one of them is everything happens for a reason. Now, we may actually believe 
that everything happens for a reason. But what we're telling someone in a very difficult time, and this relates to the second thing that we shouldn't say, when we say everything happens for a reason, we're telling them that God did that to them. Even that's not what you meant to say, that's the message that they're hearing. If you said whatever you're going through, it's everything happened because of a reason, generally they're going to interpret that to say God was the one who provided that reason. The second thing that we should avoid saying is that someone is hurting because it is God's will, right? Now, there are a few exceptions in the Bible where people do suffer because it is God's will. Don't get me wrong, it does happen. But in each of those situations, there is someone who has a prophetic witness to say, this is God, and it's because you have done this, this, and this, right? It is not our job to tell people that they're going through whatever suffering or whatever hurt or whatever pain because it is God's will. In fact, in the Wesleyan tradition, we don't believe that, that God is some sort of puppet master orchestrating every single little action behind the scene. We believe that God has given us as humans free will and the choice to make and the ability to make choices. And those choices often bring about suffering. Not all suffering is brought about by human choices. So we really need to be really careful and not tell people everything happens for a reason and not tell people they are suffering because God wanted it to happen because that can cause even more pain and may even cause them to lose their relationship with God, which is the very thing they need in the midst of a difficult time, is they need their, their relationship with God. So why does suffering happen? There's a few different causes. One is natural causes, right? So these are things like hurricanes. We've got Dor Hurricane Dorian heading towards the East Coast, right? There are going to be people, there already have been, there are going to be people whose lives are putting at risk and danger, people hurt, because of this natural disaster. We have earthquakes, tornadoes, mudslides, all sorts of things. And these are not caused by human action. They just happen. Part of the world we live in, we know that weather, ge geographical things are going to cause suffering in people's lives. What's interesting, what's interesting is that the people who are hurt the most by natural disasters tend to be the poor because they don't have houses that can withstand the weather, or they have to live in a place that is dangerous. So there are some human factors. As we continue to choose to pollute and endanger our environment, right, it seems like these natural disasters are coming more and more, and they're more powerful, and they cause more death and destruction. So maybe we need to think about how we're living as a human society and say maybe it's not a good idea for us to keep constantly polluting over and over and over again. Figure out some ways to, to be more responsible with our environment. So there are some human causes in that. Sometimes where we choose to live as humans, right? We live in a place that is more susceptible. I mean, if you live in California, you, there are going to be earthquakes. If you live near the ocean, you're likely to be hit by a hurricane. So even where we choose to live is a human choice. But in general, humans don't cause that. So suffering can happen because of natural causes. I think about sickness, right? I cannot tell you why some people have genetic illnesses, right? I cannot tell you why cancer exists. You know, if I was designing a world, I probably wouldn't have made that happen. All I can tell you is that we live in a world where people get sick and they die, and that's a terrible thing. But I will tell you there is a human element to this too, because there are people in this world who don't have access to the, to the medical care they need to save their life. There are many people who get sick who die because they don't have access to the, what they need, right? That's another human cause. What are we doing to prevent people 
that is preventing people from getting the, the, the medical care they need, they, they need. And then, of course, the third cause of suffering, I think, is the most common, and the one that we're going to read about, and that is human choices. For whatever reason, God gave humans free will and dominion over the earth. And I think if you summed it up, I haven't done any math or any real research on this particular thing, but just from observation, the vast majority of suffering in our world is caused by human choices. Think about your life. Think about the pain and suffering in your life. Most of it was either caused by your choice or by someone else's, by how we act, by how we treat one another. We cause evil in this world if we don't live the way God wants us to live. Yet again, on Friday and on Saturday, we had more shootings because people are making choices that are evil. They're making choices and saying that this is how I want to express myself for whatever reason. This is how I want to, people to think about me. I'm going to hurt other people to get my way. I don't really have a lot of answers for why that is. I do know that we as a society keep allowing it. And for whatever reason, you know, setting aside politics, right? So if you believe that gun control is the solution, well, let's get on it, right? If you believe gun control is going to stop mass shootings, then let's do it. If you believe that it's a mental health issue, what are you doing to make sure people get the mental care that they need? If you think it's a parenting issue, right, and you think it's because these folks don't have good role models in their life, if you think it's a societal moral issue, what are you doing to change our society? What are we doing as a church? Because it's not just about people choosing evil. It's about good people, I guess good people, people who follow Christ, people who want goodness in their life, also allowing it to happen. Evil often happens because we choose to do nothing. So we can choose to do evil things, and that causes evil. Or when bad things happen, we can choose to do nothing, and thus continue the evil. The story that we're about to read, we have these two women who stand up to the most powerful person in the world at their time to prevent an evil act. So our scripture this morning comes from Exodus chapter, chapter 1, starting in verse 8. And this is what it says. Now a new king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Now if you've studied any history, when you have a regime change, when you have one king give way to another king, is always a nerve-wracking time, right? Because it's not like in America where when we elect a new president, it generally changes hands peacefully and there's no violence. A lot of times when a new king comes in, there's a lot of violence. And they have to establish their reign somehow. This is what he says. He said to the people, the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. So this is the t- one of the tools of the powerful to oppress a minority group of people. It's a lie. There is no possible way that the Jewish people were in greater number than the Egyptians. This is like propaganda. He's, he has something he wants to do. He wants to secure his power base, so he's going to lie about another group of people to make it happen. The, the, the Jewish people, when they came to Egypt, were maybe a couple hundred people. There's no way in a few generations they had more people than the Egyptians. Now, they were growing in number, and I'm sure they, that the Egyptians were getting nervous about that, but he is making stuff up to get his way. It goes on. Come on and let's be smart and deal with them. Otherwise, they will only grow in number. 
And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. Again, this claim has no basis in truth or reality. He's just making something up so that this king can do whatever he wants, so that he can oppress the Jewish people. How many times in history have we seen this over and over and over again? Yes, for the Jewish people, but anytime there's a minority group, the people in power want to do something, and so they'll make up, they'll make up lies about the group. As a result, the Egyptians put foremen of forced work gangs over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. They built storage cities from Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they grew and spread, so much so that the Egyptians started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. Started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but anytime we have dehumanized another group of people that we look at to any of those individuals with disgust and dread, we're one step away from doing something awful. Think about that word, dehumanize. It means you've lowered that person to a level lower than human. Not because of what they've done, but because of what you have chosen to do. And then it makes it much easier to do evil acts because they're not human. You've dehumanized them. So the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. They made their lives miserable with hard labor, making mortar and bricks, doing field work, and by forcing them to do all kinds of cruel work. The king spoke to two Hebrew midwives named Shipra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and see a baby being born, if, you, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, you, can't, you can let her live. Now the two wives respected God, so they didn't obey the Egyptian king. Instead, they let the baby boys live. Now let's think about these two women for a second. Two midwives. That's also how we know that the, this, this high idea that there were more Jewish people than Egyptians. They had two midwives, <laughs> right? So two midwives couldn't take care of that many women. So this is all this made up by this king so that he can oppress and enslave and murder the Jewish people. But these two midwives, the most powerful person of their day, comes to them and says, hey, I need you to go do this. I need you to kill every male. And these women, and now we've talked about this before, right? This was a patriarchal society. Women didn't have authority. They didn't have power. And these two ordinary women stand up to the most powerful man of their day, and they save lives. You know, there's a thought in Christianity from some people that as Christians, we can't stand up to power if we break the law. And this is a great example that if, if the government if someone in power is telling you to do something that's evil or immoral or wrong, or they pass a law or a rule that is wrong, as followers of God, we don't have to follow it. I think the civil rights is a, is a great example of this. They, do, they would go and they would break the law. Like, for example, they would go, the black people would go and they would drink from the water fountain that they were told that only white people could drink from. And then they would get arrested. And they would take on the consequences of that punishment and they would say, you know, we're going to take on the consequence of the punishment of this law because we know it is an immoral and unjust law. Here, Shipra and Pua say, what you're asking us to do is immoral. You're asking us to murder children. And even if it costs us our life, we will not do it. But then they actually go a step further. So the king of Egypt called the two midwives and said to them, why are you doing this? Why are you letting the baby boys live? The two midwives said to Pharaoh, because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women, they're much stronger and give birth before any midwives can get to them. So God treated the midwives well, and the people kept on multiplying and became very strong. And because the midwives respected God, God gave them households of their own. They lie. They just lied. And it says, 
right here, God treated the midwives well. So they actually lied to Pharaoh to protect and save the lives of innocents. Now, I'm not telling you to break God's law on a whim, that it's okay just because you feel like it, you can break one of the Ten Commandments. But if it was choosing between murdering children and not lying, they chose that lying, that it was okay to lie. And God respected their decision. Sometimes when the powerful in our world are telling us to do things that are evil and wrong, we need to stand up to them and say, no, we're not going to do that. As Christians, we cannot do what you're asking us to do. We cannot do what you're asking us to do. Then the Pharaoh gave an order to all his people, throw every baby boy born to the Hebrews into the Nile River, but you can let all the girls live. And, and then we get to the most tragic part of the story, is despite their resistance and despite their efforts, Pharaoh sends his army in and then starts killing all the baby boys. All oh, the resistance doesn't end there. We know Moses' mom, this is where Moses' story picks up. Moses' mom puts him in the river, and then he's saved by Pharaoh's daughter, who resists this evil law that the Pharaoh had done, and then all these women standing up and doing and resisting the evilness that was in Egypt at the time. When we talk about suffering and why it exists, how much of it is because we as humans witness it, witness evil things going on in our world and in our life, and we do nothing? One of the big issues of our day, age and, and day is dehumanization. And that it, what it is is we see people talking about people who are on different sides of viewpoints or different religions or different races, and we talk to about them like they're less than human. We see this all the time on social media. We see it all the time in our politicians' rhetoric that we can be little people and, and nothing happens. I think one of the reasons that we're seeing some of these shootings, that we're seeing violence against other people, is because when we be little people, when we use our language to imply that other people are less than human, it's only one more step to actually committing violence. This is what Brene Brown says. Dehumanization is the process by, we, by which we become accepting of violations against human nature, the human spirit, and for many of us, violation against the central tenets of our faith. There is a line. It's etched from dignity. We must never tolerate dehumanization. The primary instrument of violence that has been used in every genocide recorded out throughout history and make atrocities like slavery, torture, and human trafficking possible. Let me say that again. We must never tolerate dehumanization, the primary instrument of violence that has been used in every genocide recorded throughout history, and make atrocities like slavery, torture, and human trafficking possible. So when we're seeing this go on, and we see people in our group, whatever that might be, making fun, dehumanizing, belittling people in another group, we need to stand up and say, this behavior is not okay. It's okay to disagree. In fact, we want to disagree. We want to be in people with diverse ideas, diverse opinions, diverse viewpoints, and have conversations. But when it gets to the point where we are mocking people, when we are belittling people, when we are treating people as less than human, it's only one step away from violence. And it has been throughout history. And I'm really concerned about where our world is going, where our world leaders, not just in America, but throughout Europe, in belittling people who are different than themselves. This is a problem. And we as Christians need to stand up and say that it is not okay. When we hear it, when we see it, it's okay to have different opinions, but it's not okay 
to mistreat one another. So what do we do, though? What do we do when there is suffering? And even in this story, to the best interest and the best ability of these two women, they do everything they can to resist Pharaoh, and the suffering still happens. What are our answers? What do we do? How as followers of God do we deal with the pain and suffering that's in the world? You know, there's, there's this thing called theodicy, and it's this great question of if God is all-powerful and God is good, why does God allow suffering in our world? And I'm going to tell you there's not a great answer. In all my studies and all my theology, there's no, like, easy, we can give you a 30-second answer and you'd be happy with it. We don't know why God ultimately chose to allow suffering. We can give you a few answers. And here are a few that I, think, that I think of. And the first is, I think God sees humanity as God's child. If you've ever risen a child or you've ever had children in your life, you know that you cannot prevent every amount of harm for them. or They'll never learn and they'll never grow, right? You can't prevent them from falling. You can't prevent them from being hurt because they have to grow up to be adults. And for whatever reason, I think one reason that God is allowing suffering in our world is so that we can grow up as a human race. God has huge plans for humans. He put us to rule this earth. He says that we are made in his own image. God has huge plans, huge responsibilities. And ultimately, God just needs us to grow up, to stop making some of these decisions. I think another reason is that suffering actually helps us become the people of God that God wants us to be. I know that's really difficult to put into words. Romans 5, 3 and 4 says this, but not only that, we even take pride in our problems because we know that, that trouble produces endurance and that endurance produces character and that character produces hope. This hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Think about that. Well, think about what he's saying. We take pride, in, in many translations it says, in our sufferings. We take pride in our tr- problems because we know that trouble produces endurance. It's just like when we're training for a race, right? The more we train, the more endurance we have. The more trouble that we experience, the more endurance that we have. And that our endurance produces character. So your sufferings that you experience helps produce character. And that character produces hope. So because of you going through suffering, of you enduring difficulties, what he's saying is it, it, it makes you a better person, and it gives you hope, and it helps you trust in Christ more. I think that's a little bit of a difficult pill to swallow. That one reason God allows suffering is because it makes us better. That's really hard, though, when we're in the midst of it. It's really hard when it's a loved one who's sick, when it's a child who's lost a life. It's really hard when we see people going through difficult times. And yet it's a reality that we have to remember. Another reason that, that God allows suffering is because God has sent us. And when we are witnessing suffering going on, we are supposed to be the kind of people that show up. We're the kind of people that we're supposed to put our bodies in harm way. If there's someone hurting in our world, there's violence going on, we should be showing up as a, as a shield of love for other people. So there's a lot of times that suffering happens because Christians didn't show up. Suffering happens because we don't do our job. Why does suffering happen? Because Christians don't respond to the call that God has on their life. These are some tough answers. And these are some tough questions. And like I said, I don't have all the answers this morning. 
but I'm going to call up a man who has all the answers. Uh, I'm going to call up Phil Gore. He actually, I'm, I'm putting him on, uh, on the spot there, but he is going to come up with me. Uh, if you don't know, Phil Gore has been a pastor for over 20 years. Uh, he retired from that particular profession, and he agreed that uh, he would come up here. We submitted some questions that you guys have about suffering, and uh, we're going to grab some stools and uh, answer these questions for you guys to the best of our ability. But I'll tell you that there aren't always good answers to every question. So, Phil, will you tell us a little about yourself and about your ministry? For uh, not just giving us, you know, three poems and a pretty parting word, but actually, you know, dealing with these issues that are not commonly talked about in church. They're not, they're not comfortable. And uh, I, I grew up in church, uh, read through the Bible many times uh, as a child, and just kind of was recognized as someone who could articulate uh, things out of Scripture. And became a, a minister at a very young age and uh, was full-time from 23 until 43. Uh, my passions and interest kind of changed, evolved, uh, if you will, from being a, a pastor with a church and those kinds of responsibilities and feeling like a, a fireman living at the firehouse. Uh, and you, you'll appreciate that more over the next few years. Uh, and so... I've entered into what some people used to talk about as, as marketplace ministry. I, I found an opportunity to share Jesus in different ways, different places, um, all over the country really, but especially across the state of Texas now the last five years. And uh, it's very rewarding. Um, so thank you for the opportunity Absolutely. to share Absolutely. with you today. So our first question is, why do good people have to suffer? And then related to it, we see people of faith going through suffering, and then we see people who maybe don't have faith who go through life unscathed, why do those without faith not suffer? Uh, and then just other ones related to that about seeing children suffer, um, a mother taken from their family. Why does one person suffer and why do other people not? Yeah, I think it's amazing this obsession we have with fairness. And, uh, you know, children have it. My wife and I ran uh, youth camps for several years in the state of Oregon. And uh, it, it was interesting working with young people how they're constantly obsessed with fairness. And whether that's the size of portion of food they get or whether that's the time they go to bed or, you know, because sometimes in a, in a youth camp setting when children are acting out misbehaving, they all kind of have to move down a path so you can manage, herd the cats, as it were. And... Uh, it, it was interesting, just it resonates in my head, the, the children saying, well, that's not fair, that's not fair, and, and me feeling like, you need to get used to that. Li life is not fair. Uh, the, the scriptures are really clear that good things and bad things happen to people who are, quote, unquote, good and bad, but it really gets to a, a more important question of who decides who is good and who decides who is bad? We live in a broken and fallen world, and we have to acknowledge we're all flawed. We all, the, the Scripture's really clear on that. We all come short of God's standard of perfection. And uh, we, we think of somebody because they commit a certain type of act or a certain type of sin as being worse than us who maybe pretend we don't have sins, <laughs> you know. We, we like to, it's a self-preservation thing, I think, to imagine that we... Um, 
our good and somebody else's bad, but God's on a different plane than us. You, you know, he, the, the immortal God of the universe has a whole different perspective of, of what is fair. And uh, we, we, because we live in this broken, fallen world, we do suffer consequences, as you mentioned already this morning, that really are as a result of other people's actions as much as sometimes our own. But then our inaction has a really important part to play, too. Sure. So it, it is kind of this, <clears throat> this age-old question, but when I saw that question, it reminded me of a passage of Scripture in John chapter 9, where there's a man that's born blind. And a few of you might remember this passage, but as Jesus and his disciples are passing by, his disciples ask him this, what seemed to me a really absurd question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, in our understanding, the, the really stupid part of that question is that the man sinned to be born blind. Like, okay, I couldn't, I've never been able to get my head around how that is a legitimate question, that the baby who was being born had somehow previously sinned, unless you believe in reincarnation or something. But, but I, I do understand that it is possible that one of the parents had sinned, and there are sin, if you don't know about this, Google it, uh, there are sins that parents commit that cause that type of a reaction for a child to be born blind. And, and the reality is, much of those diseases in our society all come from grotesque sin, but gets passed down to, quote-unquote, innocent people. So a person could be born blind because the parents sin. That's legitimate. In that particular passage, Jesus says this happened so that God's glory could be demonstrated. And uh, I, I think it's really dangerous, as David said already, for us to imagine every time somebody's going through something difficult that that's simply an opportunity for God to look good. It's, it's not that simplistic. But God does show up, and I think uh, even though I'm taking too much time to answer this question, <laughs> that, that's really fundamental is that God is with us, and he takes us through things. I was reminded as David was speaking of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace where God showed up. He, he was there with them. He didn't take them out of the furnace. He didn't even prevent them from going into the furnace, but he was with them through the furnace. And I, I think that's something we need to hang on to. Absolutely. Um, the next question was I took for me because it was, uh, what does John Wesley say about suffering? If you don't know, John Wesley is the founder of the Wesleyan Methodist tradition that we are part of. I guess a, a Methodist nerd asked this question, but um, John Wesley basically, he has a lot to say about suffering, as you can imagine, so um, I'll, I'll happily post some of his sermons, but um, he, he, basically what we've been saying, that suffering is not God's will, that God made the world good, and yet we live in a fallen world, and uh, God uses our suffering to help us grow, and uh, we'll, we'll do that, and to grow in our faith and become the people that God wants us to do. So while God doesn't cause it, God allows it and uses it to help us to grow to be the people that God wants us to be. Um, you get all the hard questions. So when suffering is great and faith becomes full of doubt, how should we handle that? You know, it's tough. And I've observed this all of my life. Some people seem to have an easy time serving God when things are going great and a hard time serving God or believing in God when things are difficult. Other people, you'll watch this happen. It, it, it's 
really amazing. Other people, when things get tough, they immediately turn to God. And then when everything is going easy, they tend to slide away or, or walk away from God. You, you see people that sort of fall on two ends of that spectrum or somewhere in between. There's two important scriptures to kind of examine as, as you think about that. And, and there's a third one even that um, is in the GPS notes for the week to look at scriptures. Uh, this one that David mentioned out of Romans. But in, in James chapter 1, it tells us to count it all joy when we have troubles, trials, temptations, because it's working to perfect our faith. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, it, it talks about our faith being refined like gold in a furnace or uh, silver that's, that's being uh, pressed or molded. Um, trials, if you will, can take out the infirmities or the impurities. That's what I meant to say. And uh, so we know that with gold, that gold is put in the furnace and it's, it's melted down, it's heated up so that the impurities can be pulled out and walked away. And if we will accept trials and troubles in our life, that God is, God is working in us to perfect our faith, I mean, we always have that choice. Are we going to turn toward him or are we going to turn away from him? And he's right there all the time wanting to woo us toward him. But I can personally attest and, and recall times in my life where you know, how, how could God let this happen, blah, 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 and it's and it kind of easy to lean away from God. Yeah, it really is. The last question, I'll let you uh, share a little bit as well on this one. <clears throat> how can we find peace in the midst of suffering, you know, either in ourselves or witnessing it throughout the world? Um, I, and I go back to what Paul says in Philippians, that, uh, that God provides this peace that surpasses all understanding, that we can't always know how God provides peace in those situations. Uh, so I think that's one way is just turning to God. If you're hurting, you're in pain, you're suffering, don't allow that distance to happen, but turn to God, go to God, and God will provide a peace that surpasses anything that we could possibly understand. Uh, and the second thing is I think that God never lets suffering, God never lets suffering be the final answer. There is always hope. Uh, that hope may not be in this life. That, may be, that's, that's, that sounds like a pat Christian answer, but we have hope that supersedes this life that we're living right now. We, we believe in the resurrection. We believe in eternity with Christ. So even if our pain and suffering isn't taken care of in this life, pain and suffering is not ever the last answer. God always has good that comes from the bad. It's always darkest right before the dawn. And so you have to trust. You have to put your hope and your faith in that. And I think in that will we'll provide you some peace. Anything you want to add or any well, thoughts? You know, the Apostle Paul said, if I only had hope in this life, I would be of all people most miserable. And so it is that, that belief that God has uh, an eternal destiny for us, an eternal purpose that will carry us through. Jesus told his disciples really clearly in John 16, 33, in this world you're going to have problems. You're going to have trouble is the word in the NIV. You're going to have trials. You're going to have suffering. But he also said, be of good cheer because he had overcome the world. And so our hope is in Christ in us and through us. And even in the world, you've been talking so much the last few weeks about showing up. Mm -hmm. So many different examples of how Nathan showed up for David and um, Eli showed up for Samuel's mom and, and all these people showing up. And, and that was a, a quote on my mind this morning thinking about this that we've heard so many times, Sir Edmund Burke, I believe, is who said it, that, um, all, that 
all that's required for evil to prevail is that good people do nothing. Mm -hmm. You don't know this, but I went through the uh, new, the brand new museum in Dallas this week. Uh, it's the Holocaust oh, wow. and Human uh, Human Rights Museum. It opens in about two and a half weeks. And I would encourage you to all have that in your thoughts to go there to visit, to reflect. Because one of the key tools that we're so much missing in our busy lives is simply reflection. Yeah. And that idea that the unexamined life is not really worth living. So problems, troubles, sickness, all these things come. Sometimes it can be because we did something wrong. Sometimes it can be because something else, somebody else did something wrong. Sometimes because just stuff happens. Yeah. Good things and bad things happen alike to all over. But it's the pausing to reflect that can help us to grow and be the people God wants us to be. All right. Now you know why I invited Philip.